Good morning, and welcome to Simply Economics. It's Friday, February 23rd. On today's show, India's trade pacts with UK, Oman, and the FTA bloc send a positive signal of economic integration with the world, while Biden touts economic success despite a poll showing Americans don't agree. Plus, the increasing household's debt burden threatens Thailand's economic growth. This coverage and more, up next. I'm David, and you're listening to Simply Economics. We start off with a look at India's proposed trade agreements with the UK, Oman, and the four-nation bloc EFTA, which are nearing conclusion. According to a report by the Global Trade Research Initiative, these agreements reflect India's commitment to trade liberalization and economic integration in an increasingly protectionist world. Here to delve into this is our correspondent, Michael. Can you tell us more about these agreements and their significance? Certainly, David. These free trade agreements, or FTAs, are crucial for India's economic expansion and integration into the global market. The countries involved are eager to finalize these agreements before the upcoming general elections. Once these three agreements are signed, India's FTA tally will rise from 13 to 16, and the number of countries with comprehensive FTAs will increase from 22 to 28. Additionally, India has six small-scope preferential trade agreements. Why are these countries so keen on having an FTA with India? The main reason is India's high import duties, which make it challenging for these countries to access India's large and rapidly growing market. These three pacts with the UK, Oman, and EFTA also signify a shift in India's focus from east to west in terms of preferential trade partnerships. India's most important FTAs are with countries located to its east, such as ASEAN, Japan, South Korea, and Australia. What are some of the key areas India is negotiating in these new FTAs? In these new FTAs, India is negotiating many non-trade areas, such as sustainable development, digital, IPR, labor, gender, MSME, government procurement, and competition. This marks a change in India's earlier approach, which focused only on traditional market access subjects like merchandise and services trade. What are some of the challenges and opportunities these agreements present for India? There are several challenges and opportunities. For instance, with EFTA, India has a large trade deficit, especially with Switzerland. The inclusion of gold, which accounts for 80% of India's imports from Switzerland, in the FTA and its compliance with rules of origin conditions pose a significant challenge. EFTA's demand for TRIPS plus protection for strengthening intellectual property rights in India could conflict with India's domestic regulations and interests. On the other hand, with Oman, India can hope to significantly increase its exports post-FTA as currently over 80% of its goods enter Oman at average 5% import duties. The trade agreement with the UK could positively impact domestic export sectors such as silver, metal scrap, petroleum products, alcohol, machinery, and medicine. What are the potential implications of these agreements on India's domestic regulations? These agreements could restrict policy space for domestic regulations by forcing the adoption of developed country regulations. For instance, government procurement is one of the limited policy tools still available to the Indian government to incentivize domestic producers. India should not agree to stop preferential treatment to domestic suppliers in the government procurement chapter. 
Significant tariff cuts, especially for wines, will help the Indian market grow. But these sectors in India have had high tariff protection, even more than agricultural products. Thanks to Simply Economics reporter Michael for shedding light on India's upcoming trade agreements. Now, shifting our focus to the United States, despite President Biden's recent emphasis on economic success, a new Gallup poll suggests that many Americans are not satisfied with the state of federal taxes, wealth distribution, and the economy. Here to delve deeper into this is Bella, a correspondent for Simply Economics. Can you give us a breakdown of the poll's findings? Certainly, David. According to the Gallup poll, only 27% of Americans said they were very or somewhat satisfied with the amount people in the U.S. pay in federal taxes. This is a nine percentage point drop from three years ago. When it comes to the distribution of income and wealth, only 29% expressed some degree of satisfaction. As for the state of the U.S. economy, 36% reported feeling happy. Both wealth distribution and the economy saw a seven percentage point decline in satisfaction compared to 2021. And how does this contrast with President Biden's recent statements about the economy? President Biden has been highlighting certain aspects of America's economy. He pointed out that the economy has created 14.8 million jobs since he took office. Unemployment has been under 4% for two full years, and inflation has been at the pre-pandemic level of 2% over the last half year. He also stated that wealth, wages, and employment are higher now than before the pandemic. What about the latest economic data from government agencies? The latest data from the Labor Department shows that inflation, as measured by the Consumer Price Index, went up 0.3% month over month and 3.1% year over year in January. Meanwhile, the Commerce Department reported that the U.S. gross domestic product had shown 3.3% growth on an annualized basis in the fourth quarter. So, there seems to be a disconnect between the government's economic data and the public's perception of the economy. Why might that be? That's a good question, David. It could be due to a variety of factors. For instance, while overall economic indicators may be positive, individuals might not feel the impact directly, especially if they're dealing with job loss or wage stagnation. Additionally, concerns about inflation and the cost of living could be influencing public sentiment. That was Bella from Simply Economics, providing insights on the state of the U.S. economy. Now let's shift our focus to Thailand, a country grappling with a challenging economic cycle. They are dealing with low GDP growth and high household debt, a persistent issue that policymakers and citizens alike are trying to address. Here to discuss this further is Abby, a correspondent for Simply Economics. Abby, can you give us an overview of the current economic situation in Thailand? Certainly, David. Thailand is currently facing a concerning level of household debt, which reached nearly 91% of the country's GDP by the third quarter of last year. This is primarily due to an accumulation of debt following the impact of COVID-19 on the country in 2020. The central bank is cautious about lowering interest rates to avoid further debt accumulation and is instead focusing on debt restructuring to support debtors. How significant is this debt problem in Thailand? It's quite significant. About one-third of Thailand's population owes a total of 16 trillion baht to regular lenders and an additional 1 trillion baht borrowed from loan sharks. This total is nearly as large as the country's annual output. 
the central bank views this burden as a hindrance to economic growth and a risk to financial stability. What led to such a high level of household debt in Thailand? The high level of debt is not solely a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. It predates the global health crisis. Even before the pandemic hit, household debt stood at 78.8% of GDP in the first quarter of 2019. Around 2010 to 2011, debt levels in Thailand began to rise significantly. This coincided with a depreciation of the Thai baht and a substantial export boom. However, the gains from this export boom were not evenly distributed, leading to increased debt. What measures are being taken to address this issue? The government and Bank of Thailand have implemented measures like extending debt moratorium programs, providing soft loans and subsidies, promoting financial literacy and discipline, and strengthening credit market supervision. However, these measures may not fully address the root causes of the problem. What are the potential implications of this high household debt? High household debt threatens economic recovery and financial stability. It constrains consumer spending and investment, impacting domestic demand and growth. It also exposes households and financial institutions to default and insolvency risks, potentially triggering a systemic crisis. That's certainly a complex situation, Abby. Speaking of complex economic situations, let's turn our attention to Brexit. It was seen as an opportunity for the UK to pursue a different economic model, one that would reduce dependency on cheap foreign labor and encourage businesses to invest in British workers and technology. However, the reality seems to be a bit more complex. Here to discuss this further is Celeste, a correspondent for Simply Economics. Can you tell us more about the economic implications of Brexit? Certainly, David. Brexit was indeed seen as a chance to shift the focus from the overall size of the economy, or GDP, to the share of the British worker, or GDP per capita. It was also a rejection of mass migration, deindustrialization, and hyper-globalization. However, the economic model that has emerged post-Brexit is facing some challenges. What kind of challenges are we talking about? Well, for one, the costs of mass migration are becoming more apparent. For instance, the Center for Migration Control recently revealed that jobless legal migrants have cost the taxpayer £24 billion since 2020. Moreover, our immigration system has become a social safety net for the rest of the world, while our own welfare system has expanded to support more Brits out of work than ever before. That's quite significant. How is this affecting the British workforce? The influx of legal migration has masked a vast welfare dependency that exploded during the pandemic and has yet to recover. It's a national scandal that in major cities like Birmingham, Glasgow, and Liverpool, 20% of the working age population are on out-of-work benefits. This is not only an economic challenge, but also a moral one. Those deprived of the dignity of work are being consigned to dependency, loneliness, and insecurity. What can be done to address this issue? It's clear we must return to the welfare reforms driven by the Conservative Party throughout the 2010s. The tax system was rebalanced in favor of work. Greater obligations were placed on those out of work to seek employment. The upcoming budget is an opportune moment to bring forward further reforms. More fundamentally, a reformed welfare program will bring us closer to the promise of Brexit. Finally recognizing the potential of British workers and prioritizing them over the global labor market. Thanks for shedding light on this complex issue, Celeste. 
And with that, we wrap up our stories for today. Thanks for listening to Simply Economics. We'll see you back here tomorrow.